This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's those kinds of complexities that cause me to say how much I admire the single mother. And we're working for you know, all of us as parents who want to see our daughters happy with a boy that they, that's worthy of their love. We were told all our lives that the way that we got love was by keeping our feelings to ourselves. You showed him, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Well, this is Dr. Phil, and that means you have found your way to fill in the blanks. And this is a very special episode for me because I have a very special gentleman as my guest today, Dr. Warren Farrell, and I'll let you hear a lot from him in just a minute, but I need to brag on him for a minute. I was just telling him a second before he went on the air that this was special for me, and I'll tell you why. I had him on a show recently, and we were talking about some specific stories and facts. And I was very frustrated that when you're dealing with specific stories and facts, you have to get the story told and you have to deal with the facts of the story. And there was so much more I wanted to hear from Dr. Warren Farrell. There just wasn't enough time to hear all of the incredible information that he has to share from all of his time and all of his research. And the minute we walked off, I said, I have got to have a sit-down interview with him where we just talk about his point of view, his research, his findings, without having to deal with a specific fact pattern, a specific story, because he has so much insight to the subject matter that we're talking about today. He's the author of a lot of different things, but his most recent book, which he co-authored with John Gray, is The Boy Crisis. And it's really described as a blueprint for what parents, teachers, policymakers can do to help our sons become happier, healthier men, fathers, and leaders, and to do so in a way that's really worthy of society's respect. Now, who is Dr. Warren Farrell? Well, he's been chosen by the Financial Times as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. He's a New York Times bestseller. He wrote Why Men Are the Way They Are. He's written the international bestseller, The Myth of Male Power. He's been described as the Martin Luther King of the men's movement, but you might be surprised to know that he has been a pioneer in the women's movement as well. He's been elected three times to the board of NOW in New York City. He's appeared on a thousand TV shows. Oprah, Barbara Welters have interviewed him, Peter Jennings, Katie Couric, Larry King, Tucker Carlson, Regis Philbin, and myself. I've had him on more than once. He's got two daughters of his own. You can find him, by the way, at Warren Farrell. That's F-A-R-R-E-L-L dot com. And you're going to find this to be an interesting conversation Not because of me, but because of him. So, Doctor, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. Doing your show, I love the way you listen, but yet you're also a tough love person, and that's that's the combination I most appreciate. Thank you for saying that. 
Well, you know what I'm talking about the last time we were on. Clock's ticking, and you're having to let the guests tell their story and stuff. And we had different points of view. And I think you and I were both frustrated that there was more to say about the topics and stuff. And that's why I walked off saying, I need to talk to him. If we can, I want to start talking about The Boy Crisis, because that's such an interesting book. I really enjoyed reading it. I shared a lot of it with Robin. Because some people can knee-jerk react to you being some kind of zealot for men and men's rights. But the fact of the matter is, you take a very balanced approach to this. And really, it's a call to action for men to step up and do what men need to do. But you also recognize that men need to get some credit, I think, for where they don't get credit all the time. And uh, you say that there is a crisis of education regarding our young men and boys in America, around the world, really. What do you mean by that? Yes, in all 56 of the largest developed nations, um, boys are falling behind girls in every academic subject on average, but especially in reading and writing. And it doesn't take too much imagination to figure out reading and writing are the single biggest predictors of success or failure. And so boys are, in the United States in particular, are very likely to, much more likely than girls to drop out of high school. And when a boy drops out of high school, he's not just dropping out of high school, he's dropping out of a sense of purpose, he's dropping out of his testosterone, not having a place to channel constructive and positive energy. And so as early as in the 20s, uh, even before COVID, when the uh, unemployment rate in the United States was 3.8%, um, the, the unemployment rate for boys um, uh, were, was, on average, if they dropped out of high school, more than 20%. And so this is 20% of boys, the ones that dropped out of high school, that is, that are set up for um, a very potentially destructive channeling of their, of, of their energy. And when you see boys in prison, uh, you see boys who are very highly likely to drop out of high school. But also I discovered that all around the world with all the areas where the boys were having problems, um, the common denominator uh, was a, a minimal amount of father involvement or what I called dad deprivation. Either they didn't know their father, the father had left at an early age, or the father was very minimally or not at all involved with the family. And so that started to, and that was very different from what I started out with when I started to, when I submitted the book proposal to the publisher, I had 10 causes of the boy crisis uh, that I outlined and with, you know, with this idea of having 10 parts of it about each cause and ended up finding that the lack of father involvement was by far in a way what I would call the hub cause. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because I think about this as kind of an auto-exacerbating situation. In other words, it's a situation that makes itself worse, because as the young men are affected disproportionately and drop out, and then it compounds their place in the world, then they become less involved fathers. And as they become less involved fathers, then that trickles down to their children and a generational legacy is set in place. And so that creates a problem with their children who then become less involved. And that's what I mean by it makes itself worse. And we really have to stop that because your second point is it's a crisis of fathering. You say 
boys are growing up with less involved fathers and are more likely to drop out of school, do drugs, become delinquent, and end up in prison. So this having a father there as a role model and a guide to set boundaries and structure is very important, not just academically, but societally as well. Absolutely. On every level, we're, you know, we're all in the same family boat. And when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. Um, you know, d- women do not like dating losers. They don't, do not like dating purposeless people. They don't like marrying them, and they especially don't want them for their fa- for, to marry them to be a father. And so, you know, when, when we work on boys' problems and we understand what is, what is challenging boys, um, we, we are working for girls as well. And we're working for, you know, all of us as parents who want to see our daughters happy with a boy that that's worthy of their love. And so, um, you know, when we, when we focus only on one gender, we're really doing both genders a, a really major disservice. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now you talk about something that I think is really interesting and I'd like you to expand on it some. You talk about how a fully involved dad develops a dad brain. Talk about what you mean by dad brain, because you're talking about really activating a nest of neurons that would otherwise be dormant. That's right. Before I started doing the research for the boy crisis, I just assumed, you know, we have a motherhood instinct that gets activated, particularly when a woman is pregnant. I had no idea that there was a whole nest of dormant neurons that depending on how a father reacts when a, a baby is born, uh, will either get activated or not. So if a father interprets his role when a baby is born as now I have to increase my focus on my work in order to be able to provide more money for the family, uh, this, the dad brain doesn't develop so effectively or so much. But if he starts focusing on, uh, to a considerable degree on the love that he feels for the child and for the infant, um, even before the child is born, touching the mother's belly, uh, investing himself emotionally in that potential for that child's uh, birth, and sees himself as actively involved, the, there's a, this whole nest of neurons begins to connect. And so the dad develops a brain that's very similar to, but not identical to, uh, the, the brain that develops that we call the motherhood instinct. Um, his, his, part of his instincts are different. But his involvement, we often say mothers have unconditional love. Well, dads also have unconditional love. Dads don't so much have unconditional approval, but the way they love is by more conditional approval that is unconditional in its love. And so when he, when he invests that way, his dad brain develops to be very similar to, but, but again, different also than uh, the, mom, the mom brain's development when a child is born. Well, you know, when I was reading about that in your book, I really recognized what you were talking about. And the book we're talking about is The Boy Crisis, by the way. I highly recommend if you're a parent or one of your children is becoming a parent or someone in your family is, you pick this up. 
You can find it wherever books are sold, on Amazon, wherever. It's called The Boy Crisis. It's a great read. It's an easy read, but it is very thought-provoking. And when I had my first child, Jay, I was very involved. I recognized a change in my value system and in my brain, and I was a pilot. I used to fly a certain way, never recklessly, but aggressively. I never thought twice about shooting a IFR approach down to minimums in weather or whatever. And as soon as Jay was born, I immediately started flying differently. I asked myself, why am I doing this? Why am I shooting an approach down to 200 feet and 1,800 foot runway visual range? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You don't have the right to do this. All of a sudden, I started questioning things that I would never even have thought about before. And it was a feeling as well as a thought process. I started shortening trips and changing everything to be involved and then started coaching little league teams and everything changed and you get involvement. And like I say, it's different than mom. She's the soft place to fall and you have this unconditional love, even though you might require different things of him than a mom might. So I understand the difference between conditional but unconditional love. So you described it very, very well from what I experienced. And the outcomes that you talk about, I want to discuss. And listen, it doesn't mean that single moms cannot raise very productive, successful, well-adjusted young men, because they certainly can and do every day. And they're my heroes, these single moms that are working and raising children and doing what it takes are my absolute heroes. But there are outcomes of children that are father-deprived. It even affects something called the telomere in children. Talk about that a little bit. Yes. Um, one of the things that shocked me when I was doing the research for um, the boy crisis was the, tel- the telomere difference, that at the age of nine and a half, there was a scientific studies of telomeres, There's, those are the cells in our body that contain all our preventive diseases, like they prevent cancer, prevent heart disease, and other things. And so when boys and girls have access to their fathers in a significant way, by the age of nine and a half, um, they, are, they are likely to develop, have longer telomeres. That's a, the single biggest predictor of a longer life expectancy, predicted at the age of nine and a half. So when they're dad deprived, the telomeres on average of girls and boys are 40% shorter. That is, their, the prediction of their potential life expectancy is already at a 40% shorter rate. However, the boys, um, I, I said 40% shorter, I meant to say 14% shorter, but boys, diff- the difference with boys is yet 40% shorter rate than the difference with girls. And so the dad deprivation has this huge impact on the life expectancy of children at even that early age, but an even disproportionate more impact on the 
the life expectancy of boys either being considerably shorter or considerably longer, even than girls. And it's sort of a, it's almost a, meta, it's both science and also a metaphor for mm-hmm. the impact of the dad deprivation on both sexes. And having said that, I also want to really reinforce what you just said a minute ago about, you know, nobody works harder probably in this world uh, than our single moms. And no one is more devoted to the love um, of, of uh, the children. And there are many things that single moms can do. One, number one, to bring the, to give their children balance. Number one is to understand the differences between dad, dad style parenting and mom style parenting and value that enough to bring the, the, the father back into the family. But if the father is absolutely hopeless and can't be brought into the family or has passed away, um, there's also things that moms can do, like get their children involved in faith-based communities, get them involved in sports. And I don't mean just sports, like team sports. I mean what I call the liberal arts of sports, which is team sports, which is pickup team sports, which are very important for developing entrepreneurs and also um, sports that require self-starting um, that, uh, and to perform on your own. And when children have that combination, uh, they can really de- develop very effectively. Find a mentor for your children if you're a single mom, but also encourage the mentor to help your son find somebody to, to mentor. Um, because just like Dr. Phil just said, his way of thinking about the world changed the moment he had Jay in his life and his other son in his life, um, the a boy changes. He starts saying, I can't, I have to finish my homework or I'll look like I will be a good example for that boy I'm mentoring. Um, I have to um, uh, perform well in the sport like I said I was going to or I'll look like a loser and the boy I'm mentoring will not um, pay much attention to me. It's the sense of feeling like I am needed that men and women both need, but women often get that the moment they have a child, a father has to be told his differences in the way he parents. Those differences are valued. I need you to roughhouse. I need you to, to, to press me on taking, helping taking risks that are sensible risks with our son. I need you, husband, or I need you, a biological dad, even if we're divorced. Yeah, and I wanted to point that out because if moms are listening and they say, well, great, I've got a son and the dad's a drug addict or he's in prison or he's just uninvolved, he's started another family and he just is not engaged in any way, so what, I'm screwed here, so my son's going to have his telomere 14% decreased and 40% more than 14% because he's a boy. So you're just telling me that I'm doomed because his dad's not here. And what you're saying is not true. You can fill that need in other ways. And you can do it by expanding your parenting style to continue to be the mother and the soft place to fall and all the things that mothers are so good at innately but expand your parenting style to also include some things that are further out on the continuum than what you might normally do, and then make sure that he does have exposure to some well-selected males that can provide that influence on him, and then putting him in that role so 
he can take up the responsibility and become the role model as well. Both of those things. So moms that don't have a dad in the home or available, they're not left out. They can still provide that stimulus, that input, that role modeling for their child. So it's not that they're just out in the cold. Absolutely. And do pay attention to the part of the Boy Crisis book where I talk about dad-style parenting and then just get yourself involved in something like, what is dad-style parenting? It might be something like roughhousing. So don't be afraid to roughhouse with your children. Um, and because the, the normal reaction is when dad's roughhouse, it's like, oh, my God, I just feel like I have one more child to monitor here. Um, uh, and yet I don't want to be controlling and the children seem to be having fun. So I'll, I'll try to stay away. But I just intuitively feel that, you know, th- th- somebody's going to get hurt here sooner or later. And now mom is only about 99.9% likely to be right. Um, and sooner or later, you know, one of the children right, get, right. gets hurt a little bit. And, and, you know, and then the mom is shocked that the dad says, okay, sweetie, you know, you can't put your uh, elbow in your sister's um, eyes like that. And, and if you do uh, that again, you're gonna, we're going to stop roughhousing. And mom goes, wait a minute. You didn't learn the lesson from the fact that the kids just got hurt. You're going to give them another chance um, and roughhouse again. But it's that other chance that dad invests in. And then when the children violate um, because they're experiencing emotional intelligence under fire, as the psychologist put it, um, and they don't pay attention to dad's um, conditions on which roughhousing will continue, and then dad stops the roughhousing when those conditions don't continue, he doesn't repeat I, I told you you couldn't do this and give them another chance. He stops the roughhousing and it's that that teaches the children postpone gratification. I can't have the gratification of winning um, unless I consider my sister's needs, my brother's needs. And I understand the difference between being aggressive versus being assertive. And the kids who understand, who have empathy and are able to be assertive, not aggressive, they have more friends in school. They do well. The kids that have postponed gratification do well in their subjects in, it, in every other way. And that's what leads to the children, one of the things that leads to children being healthier. But mom, you can do that roughhousing also. And as long as you couple it with boundary enforcement and not a repeat of the, of, of the suggestion for, to be assertive versus aggressive. Yeah, and you've got to study that some because, you know, dad might, say, hey, you know, rub some dirt on it. You'll be fine. You know, sometimes dad can go too far that way and it's not always right, but, you know, mom can make some adjustments there. And you found some really interesting facts. For example, a study of ISIS fighters concluded that almost all male and female fighters had in common some type of absent father syndrome. I thought that was really interesting you found that father-present families score higher in math and science, even if they came from weaker schools. So there was just a lot of things that dads add, and you can make a similarly long list of everything that moms add. So it's not that it's just dads. You're just focusing on talking about what an absent father can create and what a present father can add to the situation. It doesn't mean that there aren't critical things that the moms add. We're just talking about the dad side of it right now. Yes, children absolutely need the assurance of knowing that, you know, if 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 they're 
if they're talented or that mom is much more likely to focus in on, sweetie, you have a special gift here. Um, try that gift out and, you know, don't be afraid of, of doing that. Um, you know, sweetie, you are really good at this or, and don't take too much, don't take too much risk. Don't go out there and, and uh, when you get into, and a boy calls you chicken, if you don't jump off the, the bridge into a, uh, into a stream, um, you know, understand what being called chicken is. And this, this boy is trying to tempt you into risking your life. And th those are things that moms are really good at. Uh, and, and the reason I found that children uh, do, who do the best do best with checks and balance parenting um, is because that that mom's propensity to protect and the dad's propensity to take risks, as you said a moment ago, both can go to the extremes and every, virt every virtue taken to its extreme becomes a vice. And the value of dads and moms working together and men and women working together is that they, we both tend to sort of like balance each other out and help each other hear the other side. If one knows how to listen to your partner without taking the the different perspectives that they have as criticism. And that one of the reasons I've gotten involved deeply in the last 30 years of doing couples communication workshops is seeing that you know the, the boy crisis results from oftentimes divorces. Divorces result from poor communication. And poor communication is about more than any other single thing. I'd say the Achilles heel of all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism from a loved one without becoming defensive, especially when that criticism is given badly. And almost everybody considers any criticism given by their loved one as criticism that's given badly. And so that's been you know, the work on that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, people always ask me, why is it that it stings so bad when you get criticism from somebody you love? You know, the truth is, it's because you care what they think. If the guy that works down at the corner grocery store tells you you're doing something wrong, okay, you can weigh that, but you're not invested in that person's opinion of what you do or don't do. But your partner, someone you've chosen to share your life with, someone that you want to be proud of you, someone that you value their approval, when they criticize you, that has gravity as opposed to some stranger you don't know. Of course it stings more when it comes from somebody you're invested in. It's supposed to. That's why it takes courage for them to tell you, and you should value that more, even though it might disappoint you that you've disappointed them. It takes courage for them to tell you that. They don't have to tell you that. 
a really good friend is the one that will tell you if you smell like a goat or have spinach in your teeth. It's easy if they didn't say anything. It takes a lot for them to tell you that. And so we need to weigh that when it actually happens. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, The more you love, the more vulnerable you feel. And so when you're vulnerable, you often get angry. And so at anger is so frequently vulnerability's mask. Um, and we, when we hear people that are angry, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to beg us to hear behind the anger, behind, we, we call them haters. Well, hear behind the hate, the, the, the hurt. And if you start listening to the hurt and, and asking for them, how do they look at the world? What, is it, what do they experience? Where did this hate come from? Almost uh, when people write me angry emails and I write back and, and, and an empathetic response, it's like their next email following up is like, I can't believe you heard what I'm saying. Thank you so much. I'm really not, you know, and they're much different person that I receive in the email after I'm right. empathetic. You know, we're hearing now um, President Joe Biden talk about the importance of empathy and the importance of hearing each other. The best thing that he could do is to speak up to the country about here is what I understand about what Republicans are saying. Here is where where I feel that I can agree and overlap with them. Let them know they are being heard. Then you will begin the process of healing. Yeah, I always say and I ask people to do this all the time when I'm working with them here, is take anger out of your vocabulary. And when you would say, I'm angry, substitute in the word hurt, fear, or frustration. Instead of saying, I'm really angry, say instead, I'm really hurt, or I'm really afraid, or I'm really frustrated. It really changes the narrative because anger is kind of a get them before they get me emotion. It's like, I've got my guard up and I'm going to lash out instead of being vulnerable enough to say that hurt me or scared me or frustrated me. I believe strongly in the power of language. And when parents are talking about these things, if they have disagreements, if their goal can be, my goal is that you hear me and understand what I'm saying, not that you agree with me. In fact, you don't even need to respond. Just as long as I know that you hear me, I'll leave it there and we'll come back to it. Because if you really love each other, good chance is you want the same things, particularly with regard to your children. And I found that people that really sincerely love each other will find a way to meet each other's needs more often than they don't. If they'll just say, my goal is to be heard and understood You don't have to agree with me. We'll find a middle ground. And then most people think, wow, somebody listened to me. I've been heard. I'm good. Then move on. It tends to work itself out. I I really can't agree with you more on this. And and the importance of this um, is really um, paramount um, because the, uh, the couple's communication work that I do is sort of like in two parts. One is learning how to hear the other person completely and um, and have and ask them for more, ask them for whether they're distorted, whether you missed anything and so on. And when and most people feel many times part of the training is the person who's listening feels that they have to agree in order to sort of hear. 
um, but you don't need to agree and, and in order to fully hear somebody, you just need to fully hear them and let them know what you heard and check out with them whether they feel at all distorted or whether anything is being missed. And if anything is distorted, always take it as your responsibility to keep working on getting it the way they said it, the way they felt it. Um, and when you get that, the as you were saying a minute ago, Dr. Phil, the relief on the part of the other person is enormous. Sometimes things need to be done behaviorally. Somebody's drinking too much or something along those lines. Um, you're move, moving to a different place, going to a different place for vacation. Um, and and the, the details need to be worked out. That's another process. How to get there is uh, how to brainstorm different options and alternatives, but it all rests on the foundation of being able to hear each other first. Right. You know, one of the things that you talked about in the book that I thought was so important, and I'm curious if you think it's about structure and boundaries or if there's more layering to it than that, and that is the statistic that you point out that almost 90% of homeless and runaway youth are from fatherless homes. And when you think about that, that's no accident. I mean, that's not a random statistic. If you ran that through a statistical t-test or non-parametric statistics, any test you want to put on it, that's going to be statistically significant, that almost 90%. Do you think, even though it's a post-hoc analysis, do you think that that is likely because of a lack of structure or discipline? How do you explain that extreme finding? I think there's a lot of things involved. Um, part of it is something beyond explanation. Um, when I started doing the research for the boy crisis, I was a, a stepdad and I wanted to, I really wanted the findings to be uh, that stepdads could be every bit as good or better than a, you know, a dad maybe that wasn't as involved. Um, and so, um, but I found that biologically, children seem to sort of have a strong identity with their biological dad. Um, I remember we have an adopted daughter, and um, I remember a rancher coming over and saying, you know, describing a day at the ranch, and uh, the mother and the biological mom and dad were of the of of, of ducklings that he was raising, uh, was killed, and a chicken took over uh, the uh, parenting of the of the twelve ducklings. And one day the duckling sort of waddled out of the barn and down the hill and jumped into the lake. Um, and the, um, and the, the, the chicken parenting the ducklings just went absolutely berserk. And our adopted daughter said, that's the way I feel every day. I feel like a, ch a duckling raised by a chicken. And even though we were trying our very best and our heart and our soul was invested in it, there's something deep inside of us that looks in the mirror and we wonder, you know, um, I am, what am I a part of? What's my identity? And when our biological mom or dad is missing, uh, something is missing, something is missing. When our biological mom or dad is being criticized, that criticism is experienced by the child as being both a criticism of the other parent, but and also a criticism of that half of the self that is the genetic you know, part of the of the uh, uh, of the parent. That said, 
um, children, um, you know, a child raised by with a stepfather that's really involved as opposed to being just in the advisor position, but that it really has equal power to the mom. And that only happens when the mom allows that, allows that to happen. When the father and mother have that equal power, the children often feel very much that they have the best of both worlds, the nurturing that moms tend to create, and also the, the, um, the, the boundary enforcement that dads tend to bring to the table more frequently. But obviously this can reverse in, in occasions. And boundary enforcement is very different. Most people talk about boundary setting and boundary enforcement if, as if it was the same thing, but they're very different. Both, both mothers and fathers set boundaries very similarly. They both say you can't have your ice cream until you finish your bees. Children challenge boundaries very similarly. They want to have as few peas as possible before they get the ice cream. Um, and then but the difference is in the boundary enforcement. Moms are likely to hear a child's plea like, I was bullied at school today or I had a really tough day and say, okay, sweetie, I'm not going to get into a big argument over a few peas. So I'll tell you what, have a few more peas and then you could have your ice cream. Uh, dads will t still tend to say, excuse me, we have a deal here. And the deal here is you can't have ice creams at all until you finish your bees. Um, and so the children tend to learn with dad that they have no option but to finish their peas before they get their ice cream. That is, they're learning postponed gratification. So mom will encourage a child to dream based on mom's sensitivities to a child's talents. But then when the child gets to the point where it tries to fulfill that dream by practicing every day at whatever sport she or he wants to um, exceed in, oftentimes they fail at the fulfillment of that dream if they don't have that postponed gratification that came from boundary enforcement. And that's where dad and mom, uh, so that the person who becomes homeless is oftentimes a person who has dreamt and dreamt and dreamt, but failed and failed and failed feels that there's nothing worthwhile about them, that they can't fulfill the parental expectations, that they're mocked at school, they're not admired by teachers, or their brother or sister who's doing better is being admired and not them. Uh, and, the, and, and particularly for teenage boys who have lots of testosterone, when they feel like they are failures, that testosterone tends to look for a bigger purpose, an ISIS or a, an anger that, at the people that were rejected them, so I'll do a mass shooting. Um, or I'll commit suicide because I'm hopeless. And those are the things that are, um, that, that's part of the mixture of experiences that so frequently leads to that homeless person. Right. When you talk about the complexities and how layered this is, it's those kinds of complexities that cause me to say how much I admire the single mother that does such a great job with her child or children, whether she's a stay-at-home mom or a working mom that navigates that maze, navigates that terrain, and figures a way to get that young man to turn out as productively as so many of them do. That's why I say, you know, single moms are my heroes because they figure a way to wear all the different hats get all of the different requirements done, make those young men believe in themselves, teach them the things they need to do, go find the resources and pull them in, the coaches, the different influences in the young man's life, keep all those balls in the air and keep the fires burning at the same time for the family. I mean, it's just astounding the women that do that and do it so well. 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. When I met the woman 27 years ago that became my wife, um, the, uh, she was a single mom. And um, the, every day, she's a very competent uh, worker, but she always felt she couldn't do as much as she wanted to, to be as effective at work as possible. She always felt guilty that she couldn't take the kids here, to take the kids there on vacation. Other mothers take the kids on vacation. They give them these experiences. Um, you know, I would come over and she, she would oftentimes answer the question that the children had rather than talk them through. And she'd be so angry at herself that I, I shouldn't really be answering the question, but I have to get dinner ready. I have to get them to bed. I have to get the other daughter um, to bed. And it's sort of like the juggling act. And so we, we have created a society that really has created a lose, lose, lose situation, a lose situation for moms because moms um, who don't have the support of a biological dad or a really good stepdad um, are re almost always the word that they use most frequently is the word overwhelmed. Yes. The, the dads feel without purpose and unneeded and the children don't do nearly as well as they could with both mom and dad. And so we have, we, you know, each generation has had its war. And when we needed men to die to fight that nation's, that generation's war. Men came forward when they were told, Uncle Sam needs you. The key word for bringing men back into the family is saying, A, we value you. B, you have something to offer. We need you. And when men feel needed, they're willing to die. But men in the last um, uh, 50 years, almost every TV commercial that portrays a, a dad and a mom and that portrays one as a doofus, portrays the, the dad as the doofus. This is not an inspiration for our boys to become fathers that are effective. And we need to start with policy changes like having communication skills training in first grade and second grade. So boys and girls learn how to hear each other, listen, do all these things that you were talking about a little while ago, Dr. Phil, and start that process of learning how to communicate and hear each other in first and second grade. So it replaces bullying. So you hear that the bully also is hurt and the bully has low self-esteem as well as the person that was bullied. And so we begin to understand this type of to the foundation of compassion needs to be set um, in the culture at a very early age and boys learning that you're, when you're growing up, you're not just a wallet, you're not just a human doing, you're a human being and we need you as a, a emotionally intelligent part of the family. Well, you've made some statements that get some people, some women's hackles up for sure. And I think it's because they read the headline and not the whole paragraph. I'll read a few of them and let you respond. You say, white males have white privilege over black males, but men in general are underappreciated, and white men have been shamed and underappreciated for decades that it's very damaging for schools to teach children that men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed. What do you mean men are underappreciated and are mischaracterized as being in control and oppressing women? They are paid more than women. They get the jobs in management that women don't get. They do keep women down. Are you kidding me? You've heard all of those things. Yes. Yes, indeed. 
Yes. So first of all, the white male, we have to take those things apart because whites clearly have white privilege in relation to black males in particular in this culture. And, and that's been the case for, for many, many generations. Um, male versus female. Um, the, what, what is very, so when I taught women's studies at San Diego State and other places, uh, one of the things that I and other people said, and I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women, as you mentioned before, in New York City, uh, one of the things that I and other people said was that uh, we live in a world in which um, uh, that is dominated by a patriarchy, and the patriarchy made rules to benefit men at the expense of women. Well, as I began to look at that, I re- began to realize that, wait a minute, the world was actually not dominated by a patriarchy. It was dominated by the need to survive. In order to survive, we both cultures developed special roles for women like raise children, special roles for men like raise money. And neither gender, uh, both sexes had what I would call the rigid roles of the past. Neither sex had flexible roles for the future. One of the first people to understand this um, Betty Friedan and I used to be pretty close friends, and she would she wrote a book called The Second Stage. And the second stage said that feminism will not go beyond a certain point without without men also being able to change their roles. We have to ha- work on men's liberation simultaneously with women's liberation. Otherwise, we'll begin to get angry at each other rather than at both of us free to have, have more flexible roles. Well, when the Pew Research Center asked men um, for the first time, what, what these were full-time working men. They asked the full-time working men who had children, would you rather be full-time working or would you rather be full-time with your children? And 49% of the men said, I'd rather be full-time with the children than working, and especially full-time working. And so what we, what we have out there is a large number of men and women who don't want to fit the gender role stereotype. And, and when, we, when men got married, oftentimes men, and his, this is the really crucial point, when men got married and they had children, they often said, I need to give up my love of t- elementary school teaching because it doesn't pay enough. I can't be a musician doing musical gigs because it doesn't pay enough. I can't be an aspiring writer, aspiring artist, aspiring actor because um, that is very fulfilling to me. It's what I love to do and I'd wanna do, but I have to give up what is fulfilling to me to serve my wife and my children better. So we as feminists looked at that increased amount of giving up the elementary school teacher, becoming a superintendent of schools, and then said, we women are being oppressed because we have fewer women are superintendents of schools or fewer women are are CEOs. Um, But in fact, without understanding that, it is not men who earn more than women for the same work. It is dads who earn more than moms because when dads um, have children, they give up jobs that are fulfilling, that pay less. They, They take the road to high pay and the road to high pay is a toll road. And I'm saying we need to give both sexes flexibility but to understand that the earning more money um, at, at work and giving up doing what one wants to do is not about privilege. It was very frequently about um, sacrifice to protect women, to protect children, and to give their children more options in life than they had. 
Well, you said, and this is a quote, that families should be saying to males, thank you for sacrificing what you would love to do in life to do what you didn't want to do because it produced more money for the family. Yes. And I understand what you're saying in terms of taking the higher paying job to provide for the family, but I've got to tell you, from my point of view, and maybe it's just my fundamental upbringing and raising, but I was taught value-wise that the role of the man in the family was to be a provider, a protector, a leader, and a teacher. So I don't feel like anybody needs to thank me. My role is to provide for my family. And the better I provide, in fact, I can say today, you know, I've been blessed financially. I don't have to work at all. At my age, I can retire and not do anything. I guess I'm working for future generations because I'm fine. I'd be bored to death, and Robin would probably beat me to death if I was around the house all the time. So maybe it's self-preservation, but I don't feel like anybody needs to thank me for it. It's just what you do. What would I do if I don't do what I'm doing? I mean, isn't it just part of who you are? Well, yes, and I would say that we all need, and I think you'd agree with this, we all need to be appreciated for what we're doing. And when when we, when, so one of the things I do in my workshops is to say, uh, ask everyone in the workshop to just close their eyes for a while and to imagine, and if you're listening to this, please do this with me right now. Uh, just close your eyes for a while and imagine your dad at an age where he had a glint in his eye and where, um, and think about what created that glint in his eye. And the chances are it was something like maybe playing with your grandchildren if you're of that age, or just um, um, you know, roughhousing with you, or doing, um, you know, going on a, a uh, going canoeing, playing golf, being a musician, or whatever. And then think about that that fantasy, that glint in that your dad's eye. And then oftentimes when it's, it's, when you when you were growing up, did your dad have that glint in his eye very often? And oftentimes um, children will say, "No, I didn't see that glint in my dad's eye very often." But I did see that glint in my dad's eye when I saw some pictures of him and my mom on a honeymoon or um, at some other role that oftentimes dads will give up the glint in their eye, um, doing what really fulfills them to do what they really felt they needed to do. My own dad criticized me when I was contemplating becoming an author. He said, Warren, you know, only one out of 100 authors become uh, get a publisher. If you can't find a publisher, you'll never find a woman. You showed him, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but even after I was doing the work in the field, um, and you'll probably identify with this too, um, Dr. Phil, my father said, you know, Warren, you're teaching people psychology. Psychology undermines people's need to do what they need to do. Life is not what a, you need to do, Warren. I'm not about what you want to do. It's about you, what you need to do. You're teaching people to be selfish. And I finally said to my dad, Dad, your generation was the one that freed us 
to be able, because you worked so hard that you didn't, we didn't have to worry so much about survival. I'm free to be able to choose what I want to do as a human being. You've freed me to do that as a result of your providing decently for me uh, in a middle-class home. I want to thank you for that. And then dad softened up a lot and realized that he had made a contribution that had given me a type of freedom he never right. felt he had for himself. And I hear that as I, as I hear people talk in, in groups, in the workshops, about the, the glint in their eye that dads gave up um, to be, maybe we don't need to be thanked for it, but when we're told we're the oppressors, as opposed to being um, you know, understood that even if we just played a reflexive role, um, that moms want to be thanked on Mother's Day for the, the great job they did as mothers, and we are all hap so happy to acknowledge mothers. Well, we're all human beings who need that appreciation and understanding and that respect, and I'd like us to give it to both sexes. What did your dad do? My dad was an accountant, and, um, and my gift, my you know, biological gift was in math. Um, and um, I looked at the, the work that my dad did, and it didn't appeal to me nearly as much as my less gifted part of me yeah. <laughs> in the verbal area and, the, um, and in the writing area. And so I, I chose fulfillment, mm -hmm. and that created um, significant tension for a, while, for a while with my dad and me. Well, somebody asked me a few years ago, maybe it's been five, I don't know, they asked me, if you weren't doing what you're doing, mm -hmm. what would you be doing? And I think my answer was figuring out how to get to do what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm just blessed where my avocation and my vocation are aligned mm -hmm. because I think I do have that glint in my eye. Not every day is fun and not everything I've always done is fun, but most of the time, I'm very passionate about what I'm doing. And I tell people, if you don't have something passionate in your life where maybe your job's not your passion and your job is your means to enable you to pursue your passion, so it's just a means to an end. I mean, maybe you love classic cars and so you work to have the money to spend working on your classic cars all weekend or something. But I guess my goal has always been to do something I'm passionate about with people that share that passion. I don't just want to be passionate. I want everybody around me to be passionate, too. Sometimes I joke and say, I can't believe I'm getting paid for this because <laughs> it's very rewarding. There are different kinds of currency. You know, there's social currency, emotional currency, spiritual currency, monetary currency, familial currency. There's all different kinds of currency. And I feel like if you get a lot of different kinds of currencies, then you're really blessed. And I think I do have that glint in my eye. So I don't feel like I'm underappreciated because I get so much out of what I do. And I think I have a very appreciative family. And I tell my boys, listen, every once in a while, I want you both to just stop, look around, take a deep breath, and make sure this doesn't all go by in a blur. My son Jordan performed at Madison Square Garden two nights in a row. He's a musician. I mean, sold out packed crowd opening for the Jonas Brothers, who are his best friends. And my son Jay is executive producer of several TV shows, primetime shows, streaming shows, syndicated shows. And 
So we're here on these lots, and he has companies in Silicon Valley. And I just tell him once in a while, just stop and look around and say, wow, you know, very blessed life. And they do. And I just don't want it to go by in a blur and look back and say, I took that for granted because I think we need to find passion and be appreciative, whether we're men or women, and share that with our children. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think what you're, what you're, when you mentioned the phrase multiple currencies, or you're talking about the different currencies, um, every woman who is listening to this, I, I just ask you to hear this. It's the multiple currencies that create happiness, and it's the multiple currencies in balance that create real power. Um, and power, we have to re- start seeing as, as happiness as uh, ability to control our own life, as being able to have the glint in our eye. Um, and so and let's, let's work to make sure that men who have learned over a period of generations to keep their feelings to themselves because the purpose of masculinity was to, to make a man disposable, disposable in that nation's war, to disposable in, in, in the workplace, so he would be able to um, to produce the most money without asking what he wanted. And this is the first time in history we can ask our fathers and our sons and our and our husbands about what do you want? What is what creates the multiple currencies for you, the balance between personal happiness, the glint in the eye, uh, knowing you're producing for your family, knowing that you're creating a better world for your children. Uh, These are all current, the real currencies that create real power. We want both sexes to have them. The method for both sexes to start having them is to be able to hear what the pain and the hurt is. And it's a lot more challenging for men to share that pain and hurt because we were told all our lives that the way that we got love was by keeping our feelings to ourselves, uh, that that women didn't fall in love with men who expressed their feelings. They fell in love with men who were successful. And as a rule, men who were successful repressed their feelings. They didn't express their feelings. Yeah. You said something about toxic masculinity. You said men learn early on that in order to be a man, they must repress their feelings rather than express them. And that's how toxic masculinity is born. How do you define toxic masculinity? Well, for one thing, as not feeling that you have permission to express your feelings. And historically, if you were a man, uh, you didn't, um, you know, boys don't cry. You really don't get a chance. And, you know, and women fell in love. And this is true with not just humans, but almost all animals. Um, But, you know, let's stay with humans for a moment. Women among humans, women fell in love with alpha men. They didn't fall in love with whining men. And so when a man complained, we, a woman often it felt like, uh, to a woman, to many women, like uh, nails on a chalkboard. It's sort of like, it just didn't feel right to see a man complaining. You don't fall in love with a man who complains. That felt, again, like a whining man, not an alpha man. And there is a biological programming to make sure that for, for a woman to seek a protector, a provider protector. And that's very different from a nurturer connector. Um, and so women who want to be, um, who want to be have-it-all women often say to me, you know, I can't, I can't be a have-it-all woman. It's, life is so unfair. Men can be have-it-all men. And I say to, my response to women is actually you can be a have-it-all woman. You can be a have-it-all woman by doing what you want to do and pursuing that and marrying a man who, um, who is focused, who is very happy 
to focus on being a full-time dad or a mostly full-time dad. And they can take care of the children, but you have to, in order to do that, you have to choose that type of man, which means that you don't wait for a man to come to you. You look at men who have listening skills and nurturing skills, and you choose that man, uh, you choose that man because a man who has those types of skills are less likely to be the type of men who objectify women by just choosing the woman they want because to choose the woman they want means that they have to experience rejection. Nurturing connector men are probably less likely to do that. So you choose him, choose a man who is a nurturer connector, ask him to and, and respect him when he cares for the children. You'll then have a very strong break the glass ceiling career possibility. You'll also have um, a, a good marriage if you respect him, but not if you expect him to earn as much or more. And if you value what he does to take care of the children, that's the way you can be a have it all woman. Well, that makes sense. I tease Robin sometimes because she'll say, I wish you were more expressive or more emotional. But then if we're on the street and something bad goes down, she's awfully glad she married a linebacker. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, you, you can have one or the other, uh, more one way than the other. And she often says, I'm awfully glad that you're standing in the door when it goes bad. <laughs> But I have to say, I've learned a lot. We've been married 44 years, and I have learned a lot about emotional expression and sensitivity across time. You know, you learn, you grow, you become more willing to express and all of that. So that's a great definition that you gave. Well, I've kept you longer than I meant to. We could go on for two more hours, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you if you'll do this with me again. I would love to do it with you again. It is rare that I hear somebody ask such good questions, summarize what I've written so carefully and so accurately, and then listen so well. Um, it's it, The combination is, is just um, wonderful, and I'm so glad it has um, the, your ability to listen and to be a tough love person has managed to, to fit into the mediums of the day um, so well that you could to have the glint in your eyes. So doing another show with you would be just a delight to me. Well, I've been a fan of yours for many years, as you know, because we've known each other for a good while. And I would look forward to having you back on Dr. Phil soon and having you back on Phil in the blank soon, because I think these are very thought-provoking conversations. And I think people that have a knee-jerk reaction to some of the things that make sensationalistic headlines taken out of context of what you say, maybe that's okay. If it causes people to read more of what you say and learn more of what you say, then fine, because I think they need to dig in. But anybody that's tuned in halfway through or whatever, I've been talking to Dr. Warren Farrell. He's author of The Boy Crisis, co-author with uh, John Gray. He's written an awful lot. You can find him on his website, which is warrenferrell.com. He says a lot of things that you might find controversial. When you read them, you will find them very thought-provoking. I think he is a devout feminist, to tell you the truth. I think he just looks at both sides of the coin 
in a very, very realistic way. Doctor, thank you for doing this. I look forward to having you on Dr. Phil again soon with an interesting case, and I'll have you back here very soon, and we'll talk about this some more and probably answer some questions and comments from people that get on the site and dig into more about what we've been talking about. Absolutely. I feel really understood and appreciated um, by you, Dr. Phil. Well, thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Be well. Thank you. Will do. So long.